welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Jacob Feldman. Got a great guest this week. You'll recognize her name from last week's newsletter, Elena Plot. She had two stories in the newsletter, one in the Pacific Standard, one in the Atlantic, where she's a staff writer covering Congress and national politics. She was previously a staff writer at Washingtonian and a Buckley Fellow at National Review. Her work has also appeared in GQ and Pacific Standard, as I mentioned. And at 25, she's making a lot of us look bad. Elena, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great, Jacob. Thank you for having me. Of course. Yeah, it's, it was so funny to read you know, both those stories independently last week. And, and then uh, as I was putting the newsletter together, I realized it was the same person. It's, it's, <laughs> it's somewhat of an uncommon name, so I figured it wasn't two people with the same name. What, what was, I mean, how, did you know that those stories were going to go up within days of each other? I had no idea. I mean, I knew the Pacific Standard cover story, it, it was going to be for their September, October issue. I knew for the Atlantic, it would be the October issue, but did not know until Monday that they'd both be coming up the same week. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Um, so we'll talk about both those stories. I want to start with the Pacific Standard story, the country's first climate change casualties. It's uh, a story about an island of Donald Trump supporters that is at risk of going underwater, to, to put it as succinctly as I can. How did that story come about? How did you learn about Tangier, Virginia? So um, as you mentioned, I used to write for Washingtonian. And as a features writer, you know, you're kind of always looking for, you know, your next big story. And because I wasn't an explicitly political writer, I was always reading um, the Washington Post Metro section. And I noticed a link one day um, to some of their Virginia coverage. Um, they had a little stub about Tangier, about, um, you know, CNN going out there and Donald Trump calling later when he learned how obsessed the island was with him. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. Um, so I started making a few phone calls and just, you know, learning more about this dynamic of an island that could you know, very well housed America's first climate change casualties when they don't actually believe in climate change themselves. I thought, well, that, you know, that could make for a pretty cool portrait. So as with a lot of features, it kind of spun out of a really tiny newspaper article. <laughs> and, and how did they receive those initial requests? You know, obviously you mentioned it's a very specific uh, set of people out there. They were, they could not have been nicer, Jacob. I mean, um, going to Tangier, I was there for a week and it was probably one of the best reporting experiences of my life. Um, they were so kind. And I think I'm used to in political reporting and covering Congress, everybody being really wary to talk to you and right. really um, kind of particular about how they sound. Go, going to Tangier, I would just literally walk up to people on the street and say, do you have a second to chat? And they'd say, yeah, come in, have tea, have coffee. And everybody kind of took me in as family and never suspected me as doing anything but you know sincere work mm -hmm. do, you have, do you have a theory on why that why that is i don't you know i haven't thought that much about it i think that well one i think i come off as pretty non-threatening i i am 25 um i'm from the south i think i'm pretty nice so i don't i don't think it's that hard at times to see to you know believe that i'm out to get you know not out to get you or whatever but um I also just think that they had had a lot of um, reporters come there um, after the CNN report. So they weren't it, the idea of somebody approaching them to talk to them for a magazine wasn't entirely foreign to them at that point. Hmm. 
have have you heard from them since the story came out? I mean, are they as nice and and as accepting now that you've kind of written about them in this magazine piece? Yeah, actually, I um I Facebook messaged the mayor who kind of anchors the story, and um was just asking him how they were preparing for the hurricane, if he thought they would be okay, and he said that he loved the story, that they were bringing the crab pots in, and he was ready for my next visit, <laughs> <laughs> which is um as I'm sure you know, after you do a big piece is you know, the nicest response you can get. Yeah, of course. And and we're recording this on a Thursday. Uh, you, you're mentioning Hurricane Florence there, which is probably, uh, I imagine, will be worse in, in Tangier on Saturday, it seems like. How, how are you kind of following that? And, 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 and do you have story, or do you have plans to, to check back in, you know, next week and see how they handle that storm? It, you know, if I can, I'll check in this weekend. Um, I've come to really care about them and, you know, follow them as closely whenever I can and stay in touch with a lot of them through Facebook. But the sense from the people I've talked to so far is that they think it will um, be far enough south at this point. But, you know, all this is so unpredictable. So I, I'm going to stay in touch as much as I can. Mm. Absolutely. So let's let's dive into some of the particulars of the story and, and what you found there. I, uh, I pulled out b- before we started recording one, one section that really stuck with me and I thought kind of encapsulated what you found there in terms of these people and how they are dealing with, with this, uh, you know, the, the news from the outside, the belief uh, on the inside. Do you mind just reading the, those couple paragraphs for me? Yeah, absolutely. For us, I should say. <laughs> Indeed, when the rhythms of life in a place remain largely constant from generation to generation, that constancy becomes as much a point of pride as the rhythms themselves. This is especially true if you believe the world outside has gone haywire, as so many on Tangier do. Step onto the mainland and you'll find yourself ensnared in the cultural upheavals of the moment, in pink-hatted marches and rainbow flags and suspicions of anyone who dare not appreciate them. Here, though, there is Jesus, there is water, and there is still the land. To live a meaningful life is to understand those those three things intimately as a grounding and lifeblood and home. All we are is just a simple people, says lifelong resident Barry Williams. Work on the water and come home, feed our families. It is also to stand firm when an outsider calls your understanding of those things into question. In the living room of his home, Eskridge taps the thin glass covering a painting of the bay. Underneath the painting is a Bible verse, Mark 4:39. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still, the verse reads. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. I believe this, Eskridge says. If God still has a use for Tangier, nothing's going to happen to us. Awesome. And, and before we talk about that, I want to read the next sentence, uh, which is the beginning of the next section. I'm sure one you thought about a lot. Climate scientists believe Tangier could be uninhabitable within 25 years. Can I ask you about that word believe? Uh, it, it's so interesting to go from a Bible verse to saying climate scientists believe. I don't know if that was intentional or, or, or can, you t- can you walk me into kind of the setup in that sentence? Climate scientists believe Tangier could be uninhabitable within 25 years. Yeah, I um, that was it's a good catch because it certainly was intentional. I um, when I started that section, I really wanted the contrast to be clear in terms of what um, what systems of belief are kind of at war in Tangier. Um, you have these paragraphs that I just read, which is um, you know this belief that God will protect them for you know for whatever could happen. And in the next section, you have scientists saying, um, this is our belief system, which is that within 25 years, um, you could be underwater. 
is war the right the right framing is that really how you how you think about what's going on that's a good question i yeah in many ways i do because um i think because of the political football this has become um people i met on tangier i think were so less willing to talk about science and accept that the science could be correct in this respect. And I, I think that is in large part because of the way we've come to speak of it. So for them to say God's going to protect us, it's almost as if they've divorced um, the idea of God allowing for science to be um, and making it as one versus the other. Mm. And, you know, obviously Trump is a huge part of the story. It's in, it's in the subhead. It's you know, part of the, the, the social shares and, and I'm sure what drew a lot of people to the story and, uh, you know, his name is brought up uh, throughout. And uh, he, he I think one of the reasons probably you, you found this story and, and sold this story was was that he's spoken about the island. And, and you have a line, Trump has indicated through his words that this island is, in fact, worth saving. Yet it is one thing to address the forgotten man. It is quite another to fully comprehend his plight. Uh, there's a semicolon in there we could talk about, but... Um, <laughs> How much of this is a Trump story? It was always a Trump story to me um, because one thing that really struck me about Uker Eskridge, the mayor of this town, um, was how much, you know, he he's such a staunch Christian and believer, but how much weight he put in Trump's words as though um, there was something, he spoke about Trump in almost like a messianic sense, Um that if Trump, you know, if Trump says that this is going to be, then it is. And when I wrote about, you know, recognizing the forgotten man, I do think that's something really powerful about Donald Trump that has resonated and for good reason with so many people. Somebody like Mayor Eskridge feels like he has a leader who recognize, recognizes his existence. Debate the merits of that feeling, fine, but that's how he feels. And that's a powerful feeling, as I note in the piece. But um to, I guess, feel seen as one thing, but to actually have um, the extent of your problem comprehended is quite another. So one person I spoke to a lot was former South Carolina Congressman Bob Inglis for this story. And he was pretty exasperated by this notion that Trump was so quick in a 12 minute phone call to say, don't worry, you're going to be here for hundreds of more years. And it, it's like, okay, well, what is your basis for saying that other than I hope you're here because, you know, you guys like me, and I like knowing there are people who like me out there. Um, but it's incredibly irresponsible when you're talking about life and death. And I think for people who take the science seriously and do trust in it, um, that's something that has been frustrating about the entire story of Tangier. Mm-hmm. In that sentence, I think there's some amount of faith that it's possible to both recognize and fully comprehend. I mean, do you, is there anybody you feel like that that recognizes these people and fully comprehends their situation? I mean, I like to think that I do (laughs) to some extent. Um, There's so much I don't know about the science and I also have faith, I'm a Christian. Um, But one thing that was really important to me in the piece is to ensure that when people read this, they they were able to empathize with people no matter how much they may disagree with their politics or how wrongheaded they may perceive them to be. But, um, you know, human beings are really, really complicated. And I think that 
Um, what I love about being a journalist is trying to take these people who maybe the broader narrative tries to paint as um, you know black or white in terms of their beliefs and really look at why they do believe the things they believe. Um, and I, I so yeah, I, I would like to hope my piece accomplished that in some way, um, even if you're the staunchest, um, you know, believer in global warming or whatever, you know, whatever, that you're able to look at people who disagree with you and say, okay, I see where you're coming from. And this gives me a better context um, before I try to start a conversation with you about, you know, maybe why the science is correct in this respect. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a good transition to the second piece. But before we go there, I do want to ask, I'm curious, after having spent time there, knowing Washington, as well as you know, it, knowing various parts of, of this country, if I had to ask, for a prediction of, of what Tangier Island looks like in 25 years, what would what what, what does your gut tell you? Um, I think they might be gone. I think they might have evacuated by that point. And and, and what makes you what makes you feel that way? Just all the reporting and reading that I did um, for this piece, reading um, signed journals like Nature and talking to marine biologists, talking to researchers who have studied the island extensively. At this point, um, I, I don't have a reason to doubt the science. Um, who knows? Maybe God has different plans for it, but that that is my feeling right now. Um, I certainly hope that's not the case, but um, it, yeah, that, that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll move uh, on that uh, low note, I guess. To, to, <laughs> Sorry. To, no, no, no. I, <laughs> so I think, depressing. I, I don't know. I don't know where else uh, to, to end up on the story rather than there. I think that's where a lot of readers will probably the conclusion I, I imagine they'll come to. And, and it is a sad one. But, you know, the, the, the passage that you read about the value of constancy, I think that comes through in, in the other story about uh, your hometown in Alabama, about your relationship with guns, about um how much value people put into their way of life and, and how that is a priority for a lot of reasons over a lot of other things. Um, is that a similarity you saw? I don't know if you were writing these stories at the same time, but but do you see a similarity in, in, in these two stories in terms of the value of a way of life and, and, and some of the conflicts that may cause? I see so many similarities. And I know <laughs> I didn't write these at the same time at all. I, um, I reported the Tangier Island piece last fall and filed it in January and then started this piece in February. But I think one thing I just kept coming back to in both pieces and what I always want to do in my writing is just impress upon people the importance of listening to others. Um, that again, I, I mean, people are so incredibly complicated, which makes our jobs as journalists so cool. But um, I think with these issues like climate change and gun control, two of the most, you know, for whatever reason, polarizing issues in this country, um, there is value in trying to understand why why it is that people disagree with you and what the the backstories and cultures, what, what those backstories and cultures are that are informing those decisions. Because I think unless you really take care to understand those contexts, we're not going to get anywhere as a country. And I like, I really do hate it when people say, well, we just need to start a conversation about this. Well, what does that mean? Like, I, I truly don't even know what that means at this point. And I hate it too when lawmakers say that because I'm like, it is literally your job to start the conversation in many ways. Um, but I, I do hope that if 
there's any takeaway in terms of the similarities of these pieces, is it's that um, a lot more goes into the formation of ideology and a belief system than just, you know, I watch Fox News every night or I watch Rachel Maddow every night. A lot of it is, you know, upbringing and things that feel really, really personal. Is this is this something you you've uh, I didn't mention this in your in your bio uh, you went to Yale maybe I didn't mention it because I didn't get in but going from Alabama <laughs> to Yale I mean is, is this is this something that you had been thinking about before Trump was elected I mean the the, the ways people speak past each other and, and don't kind of look at the intricacies Yeah and I think I've thought about that a lot just because when I got to Yale. I jumped the gun in assuming that people would never try to, or that people would just immediately write me off. So people in DC always say, I can't believe you're from the South, you don't have an accent. And um, that's something that really saddens me because I, you know, my accent when I go home is really strong, but when I got to Yale, I very actively tried to clip it because I thought that people in seminars wouldn't take me seriously. And, um, it occurred to me by the end of my four years, which were just incredible that, um, you know, how could I ever expect somebody to try and understand where I come from and what I believe if I don't even give them the chance. So I think we, um, I, I think we, um, kind of repel each other in that sense that, you know, a lot of times people aren't open to being understood. And I certainly don't think I was when I first got to Yale and I didn't trust people to, um, you know, take the time to listen to what I thought. And so if you, I think if you um, already assume that you're not going to be listened to, then you might not want to extend that same courtesy to others. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, listening to you talk, it's noticeable that uh, the accent comes through most in the word South and the word accent. So <laughs> it, it, it's funny to, to think about, you know, the ways in which you change certain words and, uh, and it's impactful. So uh, well, I do want to talk about this story, but I'm going to go back. Uh, to, to some of those things. Can you talk me, talk me through walking into your editor's office explaining uh, what happened to you some years ago and, and your desire to write about it? Okay, this is the most miserable story of my life, so be prepared. So um, this, this was really just a web assignment I got from the politics editor at The Atlantic. He just said, go and try to uh, talk to a Republican who was at the congressional baseball shooting about Parkland and see what their reaction is. I only got one person to answer the phone, believe it or not. Um, and so I wrote this story and then um, I was at home writing it. I work from home a lot. And I don't know if it's because like I had just taken Adderall or what, but I was feeling really inspired. And I was like, I should write about what happened to me. I should try to incorporate that somehow. And the way I did it was incredibly messy and not great, but my editor read it and he said, you know, these are two separate pieces. Um, let's put up this thing about Congressman Joe Barton and let's really sit down and think about what we could do with your own story. And from there, it was sort of this excruciating experience of like, he had this one idea how it, of how it should be. I wrote to that and then he read it and he said, actually, this is not what I think it should be. Um, let me bring in this other editor who has an idea. They were really sure of what it they wanted it to be. I All of which is to say, I probably ended up writing a version of this story maybe seven times to the point that I was like, I would rather what happened to me happen again at this point than continuing to do this. And then, um, and I'm not even being hyperbolic, it was so excruciating. But then finally, um, I got hooked up with one of our magazine editors who 
it finally felt like we cracked the code. And I think what was so hard about this story is that it's about ambivalence, right? And as a political journalist, you know, you report and you report and you report so that you have that really strong nut graph, that really strong thesis, and all of your reporting is sort of meant to substantiate that in some way. I had never really written an essay or a piece or anything before where I just didn't know what the outcome was going to be. I because it I went into it really not knowing how to feel and writing about those gray areas is really really hard. Yeah, the the, the one section that jumped out to me that, you know, if, if I was to, to to boil the piece down does come uh 3 quarters of the way down, um maybe the last section, the second to last section maybe. Uh, and I, I can read it. In retrospect, I realized this is why I had agreed to write a piece about guns and to make the trip home. I hated what had happened to me, which is you had been, been shot in the arm. I guess we haven't said that uh, explicitly, <laughs> so I will say that. I hated what had, we've been keeping it, keeping the suspense long enough. I hated what had happened to me, and I hated what had happened to the children in Parkland. I wanted to hate guns, too. That's how I thought a good person should feel. I'd recatalogued my ambivalence from unsettling to irresponsible, even immoral, and yet it remained. How, how did that? How did that section come about? I think that one of the struggles, or probably the biggest struggle I had um, at the beginning of writing this piece was, and you know, my editors kind of fell into this trap too. They really wanted me to. There really wanted to be change over time in the piece that I had either arrived at a place of like, I'm more pro gun rights than ever, or I am, you know, for abolishing every firearm in the country or something. And, you know, finally, this editor that I ended up with, I said to her, I was just like, I've got to be honest, Kate, I don't, I don't really, I don't know how I feel about this. And she was, and she said, you know, this, this is really hard to write to, but it's also valuable. And it's human. And, it would be dishonest for you to tell it otherwise. So we um, we kind of decided that narrating that process in and of itself could actually maybe prove valuable. And I am happy with how that turned out because I think any other way um, to me would have felt incredibly dishonest. Um, but you know, to that line specifically, after I got shot. Um, I, I just didn't really think about kind of how I felt about guns. There was no real reason to, I guess, um, other than just, you know, intellectual honesty, but who cares about that? Um, but after Parkland, it just really hit me that I, I've got to figure out to some extent how I feel about all this because I've tried to repress it all for so long. Um, and so at first I thought, okay, I'm, you know, I'm not really analyzing and probing how I feel about this. And that's just me being intellectually lazy or responsible, whatever. But after Parkland, and then even after Santa Fe, when you see the big reaction where it's, you know, how, how can this keep happening? How can we not, you know, do something about guns? And I think the way that translates to a lot of people through social media or whatnot is like, you should hate firearms unilaterally. And I really, um, I was incredibly susceptible to that. And I think that made me more stressed than ever about why I just didn't hate guns entirely. Um, so that I think that's where the immoral part came in. 
um, you mentioned being happy with how the piece came out. Were, were the editors happy with, with, with where you came to? They were so happy. I actually got drinks with my editor last night. Um, and we reflected on the fact that it was weird that we were drinking margaritas and celebrating like my essay about <laughs> getting shot in the arm or whatever. Yeah. But <laughs> so it goes. Um, but yeah, every everyone was really pleased with how it turned out. My, um, I'm just happy it turned out honest. I that was there were so many times when I really doubted my ability to pull off that piece because I thought it required the kind of finesse that I wasn't really capable of yet. But I am really lucky that I had such a great editor to shepherd me through that process because it was certainly the most challenging assignment I've ever had. Can, can I ask uh, one more quick question about, about this section? It's in past tense. That's how I thought a good person should feel. I recatalogued my ambivalence from unsettling to irresponsible, even immoral. Do you f still feel that your ambivalence is immoral? That's a good question. Um, I don't, no, I, d I don't think it's immoral. Um, and one of the reasons maybe I don't think that is because I got a lot of, a lot, a lot of feedback on this story. And mm -hmm, yeah. I heard from so many people. I got so many emails from people who, you know, they might have been from Boston, they might have been from Texas, either side of the aisle, who it was almost like a confessional. They were like, I feel ambivalent about this too. I don't really know where I sit either. Yeah. And um, I, you know, to call something immoral about, you know, human intellectual discovery or just, you know, being honest with oneself about gray areas, I, you know, that's, that's way too strong a word. And I think we have to have more compassion for ourselves than that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Do you, do you get the sense from that feedback? I mean, are more people ambivalent about this topic than maybe they let on publicly? So many, so many. Um, yeah. It's been, it's been really wonderful to hear, actually, because I, you know, again, I think what sort of informed my feeling that it was immoral, um, or even earlier irresponsible was that it seemed like everyone knew what to think, but me that I yeah, was right. kind of the only one who seemed not um, really determined in how I felt about the issue. And then I was on Capitol Hill yesterday for a meeting with a source, and somebody from a House Republican leadership office came up to me and said, I read your story, and I think you're right. I think this is how a lot of people feel, sort of sitting in the middle, um, you know, not really sure where to go. Hopefully that can change. And in my head, I'm thinking like, well, look at you in the House Leadership Office. I wonder what power you have to yeah. change that. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's um, there's excitement and there's power in knowing that you're not alone in something mm. like this. Do you, I mean, can ambivalence beget results? Oh my gosh, these are hard questions. Um, <laughs> I hope so. I I mean, one thing, one reason I think we haven't had any meaningful conversations about gun laws in this country is that, and you know, I, I am probably more critical of Republicans in my piece than Democrats, but I just don't think Republicans talk about it in the aftermath of a mass shooting, and especially in the last year. Um, you know, for whatever you want to say about Democrats and their ideas, whether they're bad or good, at least they talk about it. Um, Republicans, I think they just sort of um, resign themselves to understanding that the blistering pace of the news cycle will mean that unfortunately, like three days later, we're not talking about it anymore. And they can just kind of hunker down until then and not really have those conversations. But I, 
I think until lawmakers, especially on the right, say, let's just, you know, be sober and talk about this, um, that that is what I think is the first step to getting results. And, you know, ambivalence, I hope, would come through in that point. Um, but we'll see. I, you know, if people just start to open their mouths after these things happen, um, maybe sky's the limit. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, finger, fingers crossed. I, I'll pivot into into a lighter mm-hmm. topic, but but it's the same. It's the same question, really. What? And even if this story in particular was was kind of pulled out of you by editors in, in some respect, um, or motivated at least, uh, you, you've written personal stories before. One about your relationship with with Ann Coulter and her movement, uh, if you'll call it that. Uh, mm-hmm. Another one about living on on the Upper West Side, which I related to, having lived uh, a block from where you did for for a couple of years. What 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 do you, where do you feel like the motivation for you comes from to write personal or what what do you think the benefit is of, of writing those those first person pieces? Um, so I don't know if you've been able to tell throughout this podcast. I don't think I'm an incredibly articulate person. Um, That's not fair. I, but, but continue. <laughs> I um I always get really nervous in conversations about policy or politics, even if I know what I believe. I I just. I don't think I'm great at having conversations with people about like serious things, which is not great. But um, for me, writing has always just been the way I understand how I feel about anything. Um, So I am one of those people who has like journaled ever since I was in high school. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when something is important to me, like I knew after that summer on the Upper West Side that um, that that month would never leave me. And for something like that to stay with me, I have to write it down. Um, it's not, so, you know, I guess maybe for some people that's photographs, for some people that's just, um, you know, talking about it or whatever. But um, mm-hmm. for me, it's writing about it. So a lot of those pieces, um, the Ann Coulter one in particular, that started out with me just ending that night and kind of opening my like personal word document where I just every couple of days jot down things I'm thinking about and me just saying how did I actually feel about what just happened right Mm -hmm. then because if I if I don't try to put it in sentence form on a piece of paper then I don't really doubt my or I really doubt my ability to ever understand it interesting um are there are there scraps in there that that you wouldn't publish publicly I want to ask because I'm curious you know with the decision to write about Ann Coulter decision to write about your relationship with conservatism um, obviously, you're very smart. You went to Yale. You're, you're very young. You have a future ahead of you. And uh, yes. I'm curious if, if those are things you kind of consider when you're writing these personal stories and, and the way, you know, someone's going to see that headline and maybe not read the story when they're considering you for a job or considering talking to you or, or whatever it may be. That's always been a big concern. I um, So in college, I did internships at like Harper's Bazaar and Town and Country. I really thought I wanted to be a fashion or arts and culture writer and go and do the like glamorous Hearst thing after college in New York City. And this offer from National Review kind of came out of nowhere January of my senior year. I'd never considered um, reporting on politics. It wasn't something I was interested in. I didn't particularly like DC. Um, but my mentor at the time said, you know, um, you're going to go to Hearst and be an editorial assistant at a place like town and country and be a glorified secretary and make no money and, you know, hate your life. And I was like, okay, fair, but you could go to DC and, you know, take a chance and get, you know, get clips and see where your career goes from there. But one thing we did talk about a lot is, you know, 
am I going to be typecast immediately as, you know, just a right wing writer because I'm starting at National Review? And he said, just report. All you can do is report. Mm-hmm. And people are going to recognize that in some way. Um, and so that's what I did. And I do think, I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing, but I do think in order to kind of get cachet as a writer in Washington, you first have to break news. That's how people pay attention to you. And it's almost like you have to get people to follow you because they have to. And then when you write the longer things, they'll read them because they want to. Um, And I was lucky in that that was sort of the path I followed when I was at National Review. I mostly just tried to break news about the Hill. Um, But I think kind of once you have this baseline of credibility as someone who reports and takes news seriously, you can take a bit more of a chance of writing about, you know, dirty things like your conservative past and people will be a bit more forgiving. Again, I don't like... Maybe I don't I don't think that's entirely fair, um, but it is what I think the reality of Washington is. Yeah. Did did your politics come up when when you're interviewing at the Atlantic? Yeah, actually, I think it maybe helped me. Um, Like, I think sometimes it's really cool for people at the Atlantic to be like, I sit by a conservative or (laughs) like, you can't say we're liberal. We have Elena. (laughs) She's right over there. You're you're kind of the shield in a lot of ways. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, for the most part, I just I just report, but um, everybody's been great about it. And if anything, I feel like um, whenever decisions are made, they're like, well, we need to make sure Elena's okay. She's the conservative. I'm like, guys, I'm fine. It's I I don't think about the fact that I'm conservative that often, Mm -hmm. like ever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You don't feel like it affects, you know, kind of your day to day work? No, never. Um, I just I really like reporting and telling other people's stories. I don't really think about how I feel about stuff a lot, which again was why the guns essay was so hard. I was like, uh, but do I even care how I feel? I'm not sure. Um, but then of course I I did. But for most issues, I I just want to know what's happening and what hmm. people in power think about it. It, you know, I really have to force myself to try and understand how I feel about it. Um. So so. You stumble into politics reporting in some way, so that, that's an interesting framing for this question that, that I wanted to ask you, and, and I'll ask it pointedly and, and, and let you take it from there. What's the point of covering politics today? What is the point of covering politics today? Oh my gosh, um, we're playing hardball. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, filibuster while you, while you think. <laughs> you touch on on such, you know, important issues in, in some of these long pieces. And and you've obviously so quickly developed sources and, and broken news, like like you've mentioned. And I'm curious, you know, what, what is satisfying to you? What 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 feels like it justifies the work and, and, and maybe the opposite side uh, from time to time? Here's what I think. I think that everything in this country now feels political. Mm-hmm. Um, people are engaged with politics in a way they never have been before. And I think because of social media, people are now privy to the political opinions of others in a way they may never have been in the past. And what I think is really negative about that is that we start to assume that, you know, the political label of somebody defines their character in some way. And I have always thought that those could be two very separate things. And obviously, like, there are extremes. You know, like, if you're, like, a white nationalist, that's going to say a lot about your character, right? But, like, if you are 
you know, if you're a registered Republican or a registered Democrat, like I do think we've gotten to a place in this country where you hear that fact alone and there are more and more people who are willing to uh, make assumptions about your character on the basis of that. And for me, covering politics is important. Um, and this Tangier Island piece was so satisfying to me for this reason in that I want to show that just because somebody is a registered Republican doesn't mean they're a bad person. Just because somebody is a registered Democrat doesn't mean that there is not so much they have in common with you on the other side of the aisle. Um, so I think, again, because I think so much is political now and because I think people are so amped about the political landscape in a way they never have been before, I think it is more crucial than ever, in my view, to mm -hmm. um, make sure people actually understand who they're talking to. Hmm. How often do you wish you were covering fashion? Never. <laughs> <laughs> never. Um, I, I Yeah, I loved the internships I did in college, but um, I think what I'm doing right now feels a lot more urgent. Um, I'm not comparing myself to like a firefighter or anything, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I um, I think doing a blog post about, you know, YSL would not feel satisfying today in the same way that, um, mm -hmm. you know, understanding why people who don't believe in climate change do not believe in climate change would feel. Yeah. Um, you, you touched on this a little bit, but I, I want to ask the, the connection between being uh, open and, and writing personally and, and your sources and, and your reporting work. If you were giving advice to you know a, a 23 year old person entering the industry or or you a couple of years ago, I mean, do you feel like journalists should be more open about the way they feel or or, or the ambivalence they feel or, or their their personal feelings? Do you feel like that that helps you uh, connect with sources or, or or just helps you in general as, as a reporter? I think it does a thousand percent. Um, I do think that it is. Um... You kind of have you, you kind of think your instinct should be when you go into an interview like no holds barred and make sure they know I'm tough and especially as a young woman you kind of feel okay well I, I really do need to play that up so they know to respect me and take me seriously but um, I, I found pretty quickly that ha that that has a pretty negative result because ultimately I do think people just want to be understood and heard and people do want to connect with others and when I started treating interviews as a chance to connect with someone as opposed to just extract information from them, I think that's when my best stories came to be because, you know, you want you want your sources, as much as you want to see them as human beings, you want them to see you as a human being too. And I think a lot of the most valuable reporting I've done and valuable quotes and insight I've gotten from people came when they shared something with me and I said, here's something similar that happened to me and playing off of one another in that way, just as you maybe would a friend, um, is really valuable at getting to the truth of whatever it is you're reporting on as a, you know, as opposed to trying to play this role of, you know, I am Bob Woodward trying to break down the walls and get to, um, you know, whatever it is you're hiding right now. There's a time and a place for that, obviously, but I think for the kind of reporting I want to do, it's not as useful. Yeah. Are there particular, uh, you know, types of sources, whether it's, you know, young or old, older or, or different stories where you feel like that, you know, approach works best for you? 
Um, I think one of the reasons that I tend to gravitate toward profiling women is that, um, especially in Washington, being a woman is such a unique experience um, in politics and media that um, I'm always wanting to know how powerful women in this town have navigated it. Um, and so I think when I have conversations with them, I'm not just listening as a journalist, but I'm listening as um, you know, someone who also wants to try to understand how to navigate the city. So there are both personal and professional payoffs, I think, in talking to and trying to profile women in this town and tell their stories. Um, but I don't know. I've never thought about, you know, what type of person do I, I guess, work best with as a source or when I'm interviewing them, just because I do think that there's a pretty universal element across human beings, which is just that people don't want to have, you know, a miserable and ball-busting interview most of the time. They really do just want to, you know, maybe sometimes vent or connect with someone else or just have an actual, like, sincere conversation because in Washington, I think that can be hard to come across. Um, so I guess apart from, you know, wanting to connect with women, maybe for more personal reasons, um, I, I think I usually can um, get along with a lot of people and a lot of my sort, you know, my sources are pretty diverse because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talking about interviewing during a, uh, something of an interview has gotten a little too meta for me. So um, oh, oh, how do you, how do you feel like you, you find a, you know, a niche in Washington, such a competitive, um, I mean, is that something, I'm sure that's something you, you thought about, worried about when you first moved there and, and how do you feel like that's gone or what do you feel like you've learned about figuring out how to carve your lane, how not to get, uh, you know, upset when someone else beats you to something or, or, or how to balance the competitiveness with, with camaraderie, th those kind of issues in, in such an interesting, uh, unique reporting landscape. I think the people who get stressed and worried about that question are people who derive their self-worth from work only. Um, and I've never been that kind of person. I do the work I do because I love it and it's really fulfilling to me. And I think when you just set out each day to do your best, whatever, you know, however you define that. And at six o'clock you say, okay, I'm going to go to dinner with a girlfriend now, or, you know, call my mom or thinking about something else entirely. I think it's really healthy. Um, I think there are a lot of people in Washington who get really burned out and stressed and anxious because they're really obsessed with who's tweeting their story, who's not tweeting their story. Um, you know, checking email all of the time. Maybe, I mean, maybe that sounds kind of banal, but I do think, um, you know, maybe more reporters would, um, you know, I don't know, like not get so stressed about being beat by someone if they maybe had more compassion with themselves that, you, you know, you're not always going to get it first. Um, and for me, I think what helped me the most was just being checking in with myself every day. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why is reporting valuable to me? It's not a, you know, I think it's those days, and I've certainly had this, when you're running around Capitol Hill and it starts to feel more like a game as opposed to, mm -hmm. um, you know, something that, you know, you're truly passionate about and there are, you know, deeper reasons why you've moved here to do this and whatnot. I think when you forget that and it becomes more of like the, each day, like, did I get in playbook? And, you know, I just want to beat this person, not because it's a really important story that I want people back home to know about, but because I just want to beat the other person. Once you get kind of too far down that rabbit hole, I think is when it all unravels. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. You, you mentioned that at the end, how, how much do you think about your readers or, or how do you, who do you think your readers are? 
I'm always so surprised by who my readers are. Um, I, so when I, I broke some stories about Scott Pruitt earlier this year, and I was um, opened up to a world of um, readers who really hated me, which I never knew <laughs> quite existed. I got some really colorful emails from people. Um, but then with pieces like the Tangier piece and this um, gun piece for the Atlantic, um, I feel like for the first time I had so many readers who were not kind of politics obsessive people, but were more just um, like I heard you on NPR when I was driving. And so I decided to like pull up the piece when I got to work, even though I don't go on the Atlantic ever or anything like that. Um, more people who were just trying to digest stories as human experience as opposed to, uh, you know, the ups and downs of Trump's Washington. Um, so the, I, I think in the last week, it's been exciting to know that I do have readers that go so far beyond people who are just trying to do scorekeeping in the beltway. And those are the most meaningful emails to get, certainly, um, as I'm sure you would attest to. Um, so yeah, that's another reason the last week has been really nice. There are people who are saying nice things to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome. That's a great lead into to the last question I have for you that you can take um, in any direction. But you know, we've been talking about uh, you know the, this narrative piece you wrote, this personal essay, uh, and, and breaking news. So you know, taking those three categories, if you want to add a fourth, I mean, how do you imagine uh, in your ideal job the, the, the balance of those three things uh, in your life? So I think that um, reporter or journalists, I should say, define themselves differently. I think that some say I write to report and some say I report to write. And I think I report to write. I really love writing and I just love really pretty sentences. I mean, that that really gets me jazzed up for the day, reading pretty sentences. Um, and so I think for me, if I can you know, write a really impactful feature and break news, that's really exciting because that is going to generate more readership, but it's not, um, it's not really motivating me when I write a magazine feature, even though those are the kind of like chocolate chips that um, get people excited on the interwebs. Um, but if I can finish a piece and say, and you know, say I really loved these sentences, that to me is the most valuable, and that is kind of what what I want to anchor my career. Um, you know, striving for that first and foremost. And if I break news incidentally in the midst of those pretty sentences, great. But um, it's not really the aim for me. Hmm, that's right. So, so when you're in Tangier and 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 you know Barry Williams is saying all we are is just the simple people or, or, or the mayor is, is, is you know, tapping um, a, a Bible verse on the wall. Do you, do you think in, in sentences? I mean, is that how, how you're kind of thinking when, when these, you know, impactful moments happen? Yes, all the time. <laughs> and um, I mean, and, and, and it's how I know what anecdotes I want to lead pieces. Like with Tangier, I opened um, going out crabbing with um, the mayor. And I remember sitting in the boat and looking at the water and, thinking how, you know, what I could see of the wake and the water behind the boat looked like ribbons and that really excited me and I wrote that down. And yeah, yeah so um, those are, you know, those are the things that just get me so excited to be a journalist and um, probably always the first things I notice. 
That's awesome. Well, 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 thank you so much for the time. Anything else that you want to go back to or, or, or that we didn't touch on or, or that you want to ask me or anything else uh, before we let you get back uh, to writing your next sentence? I don't, I, I don't know. I think that's it. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been really fun. Of course. Yeah, uh, it's been great. And, and, and thank you again uh, for taking the time. Uh, we'll obviously have links to both those stories that we mentioned today and, and everything else we mentioned we'll, we'll try to find a link to and put in the description here um, before i go i want to thank uh, our wonderful producer this week peter bailey wells who helped me uh, put together some notes and, and, and make this sound good uh, thank you to our listeners for for spending another hour or so with us we'll be back this sunday with the next newsletter uh, the next podcast will be soon after that thank you again elena and thank everybody for listening thank you jacob talk to you soon yeah see you guys